This morning's scripture lesson, we turn to the end of Isaiah 52. We will be focusing on these last three verses in Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, but as they are a part of a larger unit, the fourth song, the suffering servant song in Isaiah, we will be reading all of chapter 53 as well. Beginning then at 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So far our reading in God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that even those of us for whom these verses are familiar, we would see them with new eyes and we would embrace your promises 
with new joy and vigor and humility. Lord, please display Christ crucified before us and please cause the right response to be elicited from all who hear and see these things. In Christ we ask it. Amen. In our study in the book of Isaiah, we will be slowing down a bit to consider this fourth servant song, not just because it's familiar to us and precious to us, but also because of its importance in the book of Isaiah. We've been building up to this, and most of what follows will follow from this. This fourth servant song that describes the sufferings of Jesus Christ with such power and such detail are finally going to solve some of the riddles that Isaiah has been posing to us. How is it that God's people can be ruined and yet saved? How is it that nation after nation can be cursed most vehemently and yet blessed and invited into the light of Zion and to the paradise of a new Eden? How is it that God, whose holiness was so intimidating that angels shielded their eyes and a sinner cried out for mercy and had to be purged with a coal from the altar in chapter 6, how is it that he can abide with and bless such people as we've had described for us in the book of Isaiah? Indeed, people like us. How can people be liberated from one form of captivity and yet still have no peace? How will that peace be supplied? All of these things have been left hanging as questions. How is God going to accomplish the change of fortunes? How is he going to accomplish the Genesis side salvation? How is he going to accomplish such amazing grace in light of his character and his people's failures? going to get answers here in the fourth servant song, and those answers are going to be surprising. At least they should be. And that idea of surprising, amazing solutions provided by the Lord through Jesus Christ, his suffering servant, that's really a point of emphasis in the verses that are our text this morning, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, and that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. There is a focus here on what commentator E.J. Young calls the utter novelty of this future salvation. That God is going to do something through Jesus Christ that is beyond all human methods, all human guesses, and all human deserving. Something that will be clearer now that Isaiah has given us this prophecy than earlier and smaller and fainter revelations of Christ have been. Already Isaiah has shown us that there is amazing blessing coming. Liberation, citizenship, light. Already he's shown us that it will amazingly extend to the corners of the world, to the farthest coastlands. Already he's shown us that it will have an amazing extent and an amazing depth, reaching not only the 
cosmic origins of this creation, but also reaching the sinful depths of our soul. But now what's amazing in this fourth servant song is how God is going to do that. How it is that the life and the death and the victory of Jesus will cause these things to happen and will lead to a response, as our verses say, of horror and wonder and humility. Now I say we're looking at the first of five stanzas in this servant song. If you're uh, reading an English Bible here, uh, probably your translation tries to help you see this structure by putting some headings or spacing between these five stanzas that each contain three Bible verses. These five stanzas about the suffering servant uh, follow a pattern that we've seen before in Isaiah uh, and other Bible books that's called a chiasm. The idea is uh, you start in one place, you go deep into a subject, and then you come back to where you started. Uh, you know, like the A, B, C, B, A kind of structure. Sometimes you could refer to this as a sandwich or something like that. But the reason that's so popular with Bible writers is sometimes you can use that chiastic structuring of things to provide a point of emphasis. Uh, sometimes it helps you compare ideas that maybe were wrongly compartmentalized in your mind. But also, it's sometimes just a way, structurally, to help you think through a subject without getting mentally lost in what seem to be random facts. So just to briefly overview the song and its structure before we dive into that first stanza in particular, I would point out that the beginning and end of this servant song, the first three verses, the last three verses, how those stanzas concern the outcome of Jesus' suffering. Uh, they're about the results, the, the upshots. Then when you move in a step to Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, and Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, those are about the story of Jesus' work. What actually happened in the course of his life and his growth and his trial and his condemnation and his suffering and his death and his burial? You can trace the story of Jesus in those story stanzas. And then in the center of this chiasm, the center of this structure, are verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. And that gives you the meaning. Really, at bottom, what is happening here? What is the divine solution to everything we've been waiting for and puzzling over? So you begin and end with the outcome of the servant's work. Moving in, we will have two stanzas about the story of the servant's work. And then in the center, we'll talk about the meaning of the servant's work, Lord willing, on future Sundays. Today, though, just looking at the first three verses, perhaps you're saying, well, pastors, does that mean we're starting with the end, starting with the outcome? Yes. This song begins by making sure you know that what is going to happen through this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, will be amazing and will be successful. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, you're not going to fully appreciate that and see how he is so wise, how he is so exalted, how he is so humble. You're not going to see the outcome until you get down to the very end of this servant song. We are told right off the bat that this will be amazing. The servant will be amazingly exalted. The servant will be amazingly degraded. 
and the servant will be amazingly communicated to the nations. That's basically the three steps in our three Bible verses under consideration today. Verse then, verse 13 of chapter 52, this servant of the Lord is amazingly exalted. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now this language, behold, my servant, is something of a callback to previous servant songs. The first of those servant songs was in Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant, who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. There we were given a picture of this servant, uh, who will not publicize himself, will not be harsh with those who are suffering, but who will faithfully bring forth justice. The Lord will give him as a covenant and as a light for the peoples. That was in the middle of that portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 48, where we were mainly talking about how the Jews were going to get out of Babylon. And yes, that had huge implications for how it would give us a pattern for Jesus, but the focus was more on the historical situation. Now, in the later servant songs, we're actually turning that around. Now you may get some of the language of captivity and liberation, but now we're really talking about the underlying condition of sin and how that will be addressed by God's servant. That's chapters 49 through 55. Three, three more servant songs with outcomes. Uh, chapter 49 gave us that second service, servant song. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention. The Lord called me from the womb. From the womb of my mother, he named my name. That is Jesus himself speaking in Isaiah's prophecy. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. It was in that second servant song, once you get out of the primarily Babylonian context, and now into the deeper, but we have a wicked people who genuinely need peace and liberation from sin context, that second servant song was where you first get a hint of suffering. That somehow, and for some reason, this servant who embodies the calling of Israel and who will in turn be the savior of Israel will suffer. The servant says in Isaiah 49.4, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. He's concerned that what he has expended will be lost until he is reassured of the Lord's strength. The third servant song was in chapter 50. There, the focus on suffering became even clearer. We got more of a picture of Christ, more of his impact, but more of that suffering. I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So behold, my servant is a reminder that this is the fourth in a line of songs, songs that teach you about Jesus and songs that are increasingly concerned with the suffering he will have to undergo. But even the word behold is God getting your attention. If you've been wondering how his plans will unfold, behold, pay attention to my servant. There is something of a startle or a surprise right here. Behold, my servant. And this is my servant. This is God the Father speaking in our verses. 
The Father himself will send the Son. The Father himself will preach the Son. Behold my servant. Because Jesus Christ is uniquely sent by God. Because he is not self-appointed. Because he is not invented by the legends of men. But because he is God the Son incarnate to be beheld anointed and sent by his Father, he is the unique mediator between God and man. As 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, many people in the world, the ancient world as well as ours, would find it surprising that God the Creator would objectively endorse and send and invest himself in a particular servant. That there is one man, one mediator, one way, one hope recorded in one book. Behold, my servants, he will act wisely. The idea here of acting wisely is not just that he will think long and hard before he does things, that he will have insight, although there is insight implied, The terminology here, act wisely, is referring to that which will be successful. He will prosper or succeed. My servant will succeed. Now that's surprising because if you see his career, you're going to see that it looks like anything but success. But we're being told up front, this will work. The Lord Jesus knows what he's doing. We will see that success by the time we get to the end of this servant song at the end of Isaiah chapter 53. No one saw the wisdom of God while it was happening, of course. No one saw the success of Jesus in his failure and death as the world reckoned it. The word of the cross, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the message or word of the cross is based on the fact of the cross, There you see the wisdom of God, the insight leading to success of God, which surprises, humbles, which turns to foolishness, the wisdom of men. And the outcome of this success, this wise acting on on part of God's servant is that he will be high, lifted up, and exalted. Now some see in that a kind of tracing even of the exaltation of Christ. He will be high or raised up. He was resurrected from the grave. He will be lifted up. He was ascended into heaven. He will be exalted. He is enthroned at the right hand of his father. Probably Isaiah's prophecy is not trying to be that specific. Probably it's more of a superlative idea. This is how successful. He will be this exalted that it is said three different ways. That there is no one who will attain to a higher position than this servant. And yes, his success will lead him eventually to the right hand of God, where he reigns until his enemies are made his footstool. All of this talk of being high, lifted up, and exalted should make you think of royalty. Someone who holds sway and who reigns over others. There's a mention of kings and nations in verse 15. But another reason you should think of royalty is because a description like this was given of God back in Isaiah chapter 6. There we were told that in the year King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
How is the enthronement of Israel's God? The train of his royal robe filling the temple. His holiness revealed and sung about by the seraphim. And so now when we are told that the servants will be high, lifted up, and exalted by the time everything is said and done, we are dealing, yes, not with just praises and honors, the accolades of heaven, but we are dealing with his exaltation to the throne of God. He will be on par with and one with God. He will be just as worthy of our reverence, of our service, of our obedience, of our loyalty, and yes, of our worship as was that figure in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, if you know this Jesus Christ, and you are familiar with this outcome, it's probably worth asking that if people looked at our lives, would someone think, oh, yes, Jesus Christ is highly exalted? Would they see that reverence, that loyalty, that obsession and devotion? that the exaltation of the servant of the Lord calls for. This servant is amazingly, superlatively, divinely exalted as the outcome of the work we're going to read about in the rest of this song. In the second place, though, besides amazingly exalted, he is amazingly degraded. As many were astonished at you, Not astonished now because you are so high and exalted, not because you are like that figure in chapter 6, but astonished because his appearance is marred beyond human semblance. Astonished because his form is beyond that of the children of men. Now our English translations here use astonished, probably because the old King James used astonied here. But the idea is not that people will be surprised so much is that they will be stunned. Uh, They will be stopped in their tracks. Not, oh, there's information I lacked, and all of a sudden I have new information. It's more like getting a gut punch and being stopped in your track. It's more like being appalled or horrified, and maybe your translations use that idea. The word is used in Ezekiel 27 as well. When Tyre falls and falls into judgment, it says the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you. Tyre under judgment. So too, when people look at how far this exalted servant will have to descend, how much he will have to suffer, how badly he will be marred or disfigured beyond human semblance, people will be appalled and horrified. Many of them, many will hear the news, many will consider the scandal of Christ crucified. As we'll see, as many as were appalled, that many will shut their mouths. Verse 15. Which is to say, basically, everyone who really sees, everyone who really hears, everyone who really contemplates the cross understands not just the painfulness and ugliness of it, but what's really happening there will be appalled. Now it says the appearance of Jesus is going to be marred or disfigured. That doesn't mean that he's going to be ugly per se. It means he's going to suffer to an extremity that people will question, is this thing even human? 
Now, the sufferings of Christ will, of course, be spiritual as well as physical. Uh, we will see uh, two or three times before we get to the end of this servant song that his soul is a guilt offering, that his soul has toiled, uh, that his soul was poured out unto death. But the focus in our text, in Isaiah 52, verse 14, is on his appearance, on what it looks like for Jesus to be rejected, tried, pierced, crushed, and buried. Now, I appreciate what our brother Millsaps has said as he walked us through the passion narratives of Mark, that there is not a lingering on gruesome detail in the gospel accounts such as we might find in various fanciful, sensational descriptions or depictions on film. But you do also need to understand what it means to have his appearance marred beyond human semblance and his shape or form beyond that of other men. You do need to understand that in his suffering, which took the form of Roman crucifixion, that our Savior was beaten, that he was whipped or scourged, that his flesh was torn, that it was pierced or nailed, that in his sufferings, his flesh became an oozing and dripping and gasping and quivering and shameful and naked and dying appearance. It's horrifying. That's the extremity to which the servant of God had to go to obtain salvation and to fulfill all the promises that we've been reading, to offer hope to you and me. He had to endure this marring. No wonder it's offensive to the Jews, right? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But really, it's pretty easy for us to be offended as well. Not just because we recoil at what Jesus had to endure for me. But some people are offended by the very idea that the justice of God would require such a sacrifice as this. You serve a God that wants blood sacrifice? That puts people to death? Uh, people question then the justice of God. But here's the reality Proportionate justice to our sin is going to be hideous. It's going to be appalling. What do you think you're going to look like as a corpse? What do you think you're going to look like under the judgment of God forever? How about marred beyond human semblance? This is what sin leads to. This is what God threatened, what God promised, what God enforces. Whenever we sin and we just excuse it as the course of life or the habits of my heart, we are dabbling in death, in that which is itself awful. But then to atone for it, we see the horror of it. Jesus Christ became like something less than human. Now, it's not just about his physical appearance, but you get that kind of sentiment elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 22, that prophecy of David where 
David takes the perspective of somebody being executed. He's, he's giving you kind of a, a preview of what it's like to be crucified. And Jesus takes the words of Psalm 22 on his own lips at the cross. It says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The reason is not because you needed to be shocked or moved to tears. The reason is because the wages of sin for an untold number of people who would belong to Jesus Christ were being meted out at the cross. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is man. But he became something ugly in his crucifixion. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin as 2 Corinthians 5 says. And Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. That is the hideousness that shocks those who look and consider, who really understand what is happening. Yeah, this is amazing. People have a hard time accepting not only that this is justice, because this is what I deserved, but also that our Savior, our restorer of Eden, our King of heaven and earth, would undergo such a thing. This is your Messiah? Uh, you, you see that kind of mocking from the earliest days of Christianity. You see it in the crude graffiti about Alexamenos worshiping his God. What do you mean, your King was crucified? That... that gross butcher feed them to the vulture things that we do to torture people to death and humiliate them? This is the wisdom of God. Act wisely. This is what is successful. This is what you did on purpose. Yes. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising this shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the beginning of verse 15 shows you that there is a sacrificial purpose to the shocking sufferings of verse 14. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That's the outcome. The sprinkling of many nations. Now, some English translations don't like to use the word sprinkle here because the scholars say, well, sprinkling normally takes as an object the thing you sprinkle with. You sprinkle blood, or you sprinkle water, or you sprinkle oil. Here we're not given an object. Well, not only should Isaiah be allowed to use his own words in his own way, but also there is a comprehensive sprinkling that is not limited to any one particular picture or ritual. Jesus Christ will be the sprinkling of the nations. You see, to sprinkle is to apply purification to something or someone. To qualify that something or someone to enter into God's presence. And so in the Old Testament, you might have the sprinkling of blood, of course. That's what you did with the sacrifice. You sprinkle the blood. In Leviticus 4, the priest dips his finger in the blood, sprinkles part of the blood seven times before the Lord. You could have a sprinkling of water to ritually, ceremonially cleanse uh, bring Aaron and his sons, Exodus 29 says, to the entrance of the tent and wash them with water. Uh, you could sprinkle with oil because oil also was a, a gesture of consecration. Leviticus 8, the priest sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and its utensils. 
And sometimes the sprinkling of blood, water, and oil could be combined. Like in Exodus 29, he shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Sprinkling to take that which is sinful and disqualified and to make it holy and able to enter into the presence of God. You see that marring of verse 14, we'll see this more clearly as the song goes on, but that marring was sacrificial in nature. It was an atonement for sin, as verse 5 of the next chapter will show us. It is a guilt offering in the language of verse 10 of this next chapter. Jesus Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice that will sprinkle the nations. This same language then is picked up in the New Testament as in 1 Peter 1, where we are described, we who believe in Jesus, as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Over and over, Hebrews describes the work of Jesus as not just dying in our place, but therefore sprinkling us as defiled persons. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10.22 says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And Hebrews 12.24, the new covenant is described in this way. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that blood that cried out for justice. This blood cries out for acceptance, cries out for cleanness. Now, many nations will be sprinkled, we're told. That's not universalism. That doesn't mean that the death of Jesus is applied to every single individual who's ever lived. Nor is it referring to the nations as political, cultural entities. You know, well, the Japanese are sprinkled and the South Africans are sprinkled. No, it's talking about the peoples of the earth who will be drawn out of all nations. Same thing as in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. It will be a vast crowd, a throng from around the globe, from every tribe, tongue, and language. And all these people will be gathered in now. Not just to say, great is the Lord for the salvation he has provided to Israel, which was the main idea in chapters 40 through 48. But now with that servant sacrifice actually sprinkling, actually purifying, actually qualifying and welcoming those sinners of the farthest coastlands, they will be praising God for their own salvation through Jesus Christ. Do you understand the impurity into which you were born, my fellow Gentiles? Do you understand the need for this kind of sprinkling? to have the blood of Jesus applied to you, to have the cleansing, washing water inwardly applied to you, to have the oil of his anointing being consecrated to God applied to you. Do you understand that you must be sprinkled lest you be disqualified and excluded? This is, yes, amazing. The sprinkling is effective. The sprinkling is eternal. It's once for all. As Hebrews 9 says, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for purifying the flesh. 
But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A real inward sprinkling. We're not saying that all the nations of the earth or the extracted remnant out of all the peoples of the world will line up for some kind of ritual splashing with hyssop. We're saying that the death of Jesus Christ is a sprinkling, is the spiritual reality pictured by all that flung out blood, water, and oil that is the picture of qualification and of purification that actually applies to us. I hope you're seeing that in these verses as we go along, talking about exaltation, talking about degradation that has a point and an outcome, but I hope you're seeing there is in this a priestly aspect to the work of Jesus. Just as in verse 13 there was a kingly aspect to the work of Jesus, succeeding, commanding the attention and loyalty of all as he is lifted up. That's because as our mediator... He is our prophet, priest, and king. So we come now, finally, to the prophetic dimension, to the gospel-preaching, life-news-giving aspect of his ministry. The servant is amazingly communicated. He's amazingly exalted, verse 13, amazingly degraded, verse 14, amazingly communicated in verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now, Jesus Christ is going to be communicated in such a way that kings, we're told, the highest among men who are used to doing all the talking and all the commanding and everyone else is silent around them, kings will shut their mouths. Kings will be forced to respond to Jesus Christ Uh, By the way, this does speak somewhat to their surprise. That word astonishment in verse 14 was more about being horrified, but shutting your mouth is an image of surprise. Uh, Our figure of speech goes the other way. We talk about someone's jaw hanging open. (laughs) But the idea is that these kings are left speechless. And they now keep silence in deference to Jesus Christ. Like Job who said, when God appeared, I am of small account and I lay my hand on my mouth. You see, the work of Jesus, suffering for sinners and thereby sprinkling the nations. Jesus becoming exalted. This is something that was previously not understood. That which has not been told them they see, which they have not heard they understand. Prior to the coming of Jesus, a couple of things were true. For one thing, the gospel was not yet clear. We did not yet know uh, all of the events of his life. We did not yet know exactly how he would be uh, fulfilling these prophecies, although Isaiah certainly makes it much clearer than it had been. But also, most of these kings of earth would not previously have known because this was confined to Israel. Formerly, the Gentiles didn't know, didn't care what was going on between Israel and Israel's God, not knowing that that God was the creator of heaven and earth. But now in Christ Jesus, all the nations and all the kings of the world are being confronted with something that amazes them. As Ephesians 3 says in verses 5 and 6, that which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations it has now been revealed to his holy apostles 
and prophets by the Spirit, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Even kings are receiving this news as the second servant song predicted. Now the news is being widely proclaimed, declared, and people are encountering it throughout the world. Romans 15, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, Paul's quoting our text in Isaiah. He's saying that's gospel proclamation. That's me bringing the news of Jesus to the ends of the earth so that those who formerly had not been told and had not heard, they will see it, they will understand it. That is to say, they'll get it. And they will respond with an amazed shut mouth. So the servant is amazingly exalted. The servant is amazingly degraded. The servant is amazingly communicated. He's going to be successful, amazingly successful as king and priest and prophet. The exalted sprinkler who shuts the mouths of kings. I invite you this morning to be newly amazed at who Jesus really is and what Jesus Christ has really done. It's so easy to take the name of Jesus and assumptions about Jesus Christ and to try to fit them into other categories. I mean, that was the problem Jesus experienced in his own life, right? I mean, who has believed our report? Who has seen it? Who's getting it? Uh, There were all these assumptions about what Messiah would be like and they were not being met by this sufferer. The ancient world had its own ideas of what a hero was supposed to look like. Jesus didn't look like it. But even today, our culture wants Jesus to be something other than the amazing, God-sent, prophet, priest, and king that he actually is. We want an accepting, affirming Jesus. Whatever you like, whatever you do, however much death you dabble with, that's good, you be you. Or we want a therapeutic Jesus. Or we want a private Jesus. And it's easy to point fingers outside the church, but even we sometimes wish we could make this Savior after our own fancy. And we imagine a a warrior Jesus who's going to get my enemies and vindicate my cause and make everything right now. Or a genie Jesus that if I just, you know, I give him so much, if he would just give me this one thing back that I want. All these versions of Jesus are not the exalted, bloodied, king-commanding, amazing Savior that we're meeting here in the fourth servant song. He is the objectively unique, God-given mediator. He reflects the character and mission of God, His Father, He is the one who succeeds against every human calculation, manifesting the wisdom of God. And so, as you encounter for the first time, or as you encounter once again, the amazing reality of who Jesus is and what he has done, 
I hope you'll be affected. And I'll ask you, are you among these many from the nations who see and understand the work of Christ? Who meet this amazing communication, this revelation of God's mystery in Christ, who, who respond with faith? Do you believe there's divine wisdom in the apparent folly of Jesus? Do you believe there is salvation, success in these awful, gut-wrenching sufferings of Jesus? Do you believe there is divine kingship and worldwide priestly sprinkling and a prophetic message that shuts the mouths of the mighty in Jesus? If this is your faith, then you are sprinkled. Sprinkled clean from your sin. Sprinkled by Jesus Christ. Sprinkled for God whose presence you can enter. And you will join those choirs of heaven, those seraphim above as well as choirs on earth who acknowledge his exaltation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Please shake us out of our assumptions and out of our indifference. Help us to consider afresh the weightiness of sin and the hideousness of death and the preciousness of our Savior who has succeeded in our salvation. Lord, help us to trust him. And may he be exalted. In Christ we pray. Amen.